It's no secret that real estate is one of the best investment vehicles out there. But how can we determine which strategies will best align with our financial ambitions? Well, you've come to the right spot. Whether you're an active real estate entrepreneur, a passive investor, or looking to get into real estate investing, our goal is to provide investors with the insights and strategies for building our portfolios all while protecting our capital. I'm Daniel Nichols, and this is the Two Smart Assets Real Estate Investing Podcast. Are you looking to grow your real estate investing business? Fortune Cribs can help. Fortune Cribs helps investors buy short-term rentals in select markets around the country for as little as 10% down with cash on cash returns in the 20 to 30% range. Fortune Cribs will design, furnish, and manage all the day-to-day operations, making your experience truly hands-off. And it doesn't matter where you're at in your real estate investing journey, whether you're trying to get your first deal or scale your portfolio, Fortune Cribs can help. So if you want to take the next step, go to fortunecribs.com and book your free consultation to see how Fortune Cribs can best help you. Once again, that's fortunecribs.com. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. This is the Two Smart Assets Real Estate Investing Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Nichols. And this week, we're bringing you another highlights episode where we're taking a look back at episodes on a specific topic that we consider to be extremely important and can provide value to you and your investing journey. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review on iTunes and also subscribe to the show on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. All right, let's dive into it with Dennis, Bronson, and Jim. About alternative investments, and I know some listeners might be thinking like, well, I don't, I'm not really sure what an alternative investment is. I mean, obviously real estate, we talk about that. So uh, when you say alternative investments, you know, can you just dive into a little bit more about what those are, and especially if they're not real estate related, what those may be? Sure, that's a great question. So when I wrote my book, The Alternative Investment Almanac, the first thing I did for that book was like, all right, let me try to pinpoint a definition for what is an alternative investment. Right. And I think I spent like two weeks looking <laughs> for this definition and I could not find one that I was in love with. So I finally kind of created my own and if this works for anybody, then it's great. But this is kind of my own definition of alternative investment. Anything that's not traded on, um, on a public market, that to me is an alternative investment. So, for example, Bitcoin, you could log into a Coinbase, you could trade anytime. I don't even consider like Bitcoin and crypto as as alternative at this point because it's extremely volatile, it's extremely mm. liquid. That's what I would classify a traditional investment as, even though people would associate as alternative. So anything that can't be traded at, at you know in a second, like like real estate, like like private securities, like syndications, like mobile home parks, self storage, uh, life insurances, life insurance policies. Uh, all of those things, uh, collectibles, all of that stuff would fall under the alternative investment category. Yeah, I I love to hear that, man. And, you know, I was actually having a conversation with somebody the other day about uh, real estate and kind of the future of, uh, you know, real estate investing and, you know, their potential of uh, tokenizing real estate, right, and making that uh, extremely tradable. And so I was thinking, you know, what does that do to real estate in general in terms of investing? So I find it very interesting. I, I do that. That's a great point. I personally, and I know some really respected names in the space, they're basically saying it's not when, it, I mean, it's not if, it's, it's a when situation. Sure. But me personally, I would absolutely hate that because my like favorite attribute of these syndications is that they are private securities and they cannot be traded at the, at the drop of a dime. So for me, that would be a terrible thing. And like, I, I, I go back to, so when I first started posting on social media, 
I remember I, I wrote this article and I put the five best attributes of alternative investments. And mm-hmm. number five was the fact that they're not liquid. And my oldest brother, the same oldest brother, actually heard, like, read the article and he's like, he's like, he's like, Dennis, you got to change that because no, liquidity is always a plus. And I'm like, no, read the article. You got to see what I said. Um, and I, I always give this reference. In March 2020, I was an investor in individual stocks and I had a private security portfolio. I had both. I also had REITs because at that time, I still haven't given up on perf- finding the perfect income strategy. So I had REITs in my traditional portfolio. In March 2020, during COVID, the stock market was down 34% uh, in, in those couple of months. Those REITs were down 34% as well. They went line for line. I even have a picture in my book of that chart. And on my right side of my portfolio, all of my private security stuff, and the underlining asset is exactly the same, right? The underlining asset sure. in a REIT is still real estate. And the underlining asset in a private security that, uh, that's focused on buying real estate is also real estate. That did not trade hands. No one, no one sold. There was like, if you were in the syndication world, there was a six-month period where there was a pause and let's see attitude. So the, the buyers were out in droves looking for blood on the street pricing. The sellers were like, hey, wait a minute. This might not be as bad as it seemed. Plus, there's whispers that there's going to be all the stimulus money. I'm not going to go sell at a 50% on the, a 50% dollar. And now there was this discount and nothing traded hands. So like to me, I look at it. I'm like, wow, on one hand, my portfolio is down 34%. On the other hand, my portfolio is not down at all because nothing is trading hands. I'm like, wow, my right side of my portfolio, my alternative investment is making a lot of sense right now. Because wouldn't you as an investor want a pause in a situation of pandemic and panic? Wouldn't you want that pause and evaluate versus logging in and the futures are down, what, 10% in one day? You know, that's, that's blood on the street. And how can that not affect your emotional well-being? But if you were an investor of both alternative and traditional at that time, Maybe half of your portfolio was down a lot and then half your portfolio wasn't down at all. And now you could turn around and you're not down 50%. You're only down 20%. Yeah, that's dramatic, but it's not as dramatic. And then you could see the positives of doing both. You know, Dennis, I'm so glad you brought that up, man. That's a great point. And actually, I haven't heard it said that way uh, before. So I think that's very interesting. And I think a lot of people should listen to that. Because like you said, uh, a lot of these these guys who are really into, you know, getting into tokenization, it's more of a of a when thing, right? And so it's uh, it's definitely interesting. Be, be curious to see how this pans out. You mentioned syndications, man. We talk a lot about syndications on the show, like I said. And much of the talk somewhat recently is about pricing and how crazy it is, right? Especially multifamily, stuff like that. And basically, how much longer can this go on? You know, I'm a passive investor. Many of the listeners of the show are as well. Uh, therefore, you know, many of us know that the most important piece of the syndication puzzle is the sponsor. You know that, I know that, we all know that, right? So with that in mind, what are some things that maybe you're looking for in terms of deals, uh, syndicators, or maybe passive investors, something passive investors should be paying extra careful attention to when they're looking at commercial real estate deals right now in this environment? Sure. So I think that, that this environment is tricky, but it's not much different than six months ago, nine months ago. The only thing that's really different in this environment is the interest rate uh, volatility. Uh, that's, that's a whole different topic in itself. Sure. Uh, but I always, one of my mentors always said, you know, a good deal, a, a good, operator can, good operator can save the worst deal. A bad operator can take the best deal. 
So number one is the operator. But then how can you tell which one is a good operator? The problem is since the Jobs Act 2012, syndications almost has become a brand building. And it's not necessarily the best operator that will get a lot of business. It's the best brand that will get a lot of business. And you still, everything is private. So you're not actively going out there and you're not going to hear bad things unless you are really networking. Sure. So what I would say is there's a couple of things. I'll give a couple of tips as one, as a fund operator, what we look for, for our deals. So I'll give one quick tip that has always served me well, because it was also a mistake that I did. And you learn more from the mistakes. Uh, never go into a, an op, never invest with an operator that's going into a new market with a new property manager. That combination is really, really bad. <laughs> they are going to be dating on your expense. Right. Uh, so avoid that. Uh, next thing is also intern um, classes. I would probably say the lower class, like class C properties. You want to avoid properties that have overwhelming majority of one unit, one uh, one bedroom units. Mm, okay. Uh, so those are my two biggest tips as a simple investor that can help you screen a lot of deals. Because sometimes, as a newer investor, you'll get blinded by a high unit count. So it's like, right. oh, it's 180 units. That's great, but 150 of them are one bedrooms. Good luck, good luck managing and maintaining a high, you know, occupancy with that. And mm -hmm. just the, the simple logic is that people in one bedroom are very transitionary uh, and they are, they go from, okay, you know, it's a single person in their twenties. Now they meet another single person in their twenties. One of them is moving, right? Or it's a couple and they're fine in that one bedroom, but now they have a kid. Uh, or, you know, it, the answer is, you know, a million different things. Two bedrooms and three bedrooms can, can attract usually small families. And if their families are not growing, they could stay there for a while. And especially three bedrooms, three bedrooms, the occupancy rates usually are really, really strong with three bedroom units. So if possible, avoid a new, I mean, avoid an operator in a new market uh, with a new property manager with a high one bedroom unit count. And you will probably screen out a lot of bad deals to start with. Um, yeah. Now that's, that's okay, sorry, Dan, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was saying that's a great point. Keep going. If you got more, give us another tip, man. Yeah. So I would say that that's some, some basic stuff. Um, the other thing is look what debt is being secured on the property. That is so big. Uh, I did a lot of research during the, the fin uh, financial crisis from 07 to 09. There's been a couple of white papers. And when you look at the default rate of commercial real estate during that time period, uh, there was a, if the property was secured by agency debt and don't quote this, this is off the top of my head. Sure. It was like a less than a 1% default rate at that time period. Mm. And that's a really, really, you know, that's a really tough time period. Now, if it was non-agency debt and do you want to define what agency debt is versus? Sure. Go ahead. That'd be know. great. Yeah. So agency debt is debt that's provided by Freddie and Fannie. And usually that's the best type of debt. It's the lowest rates. Um, it's fixed. So it's not changing usually. Um, so it's more geared for long-term buy and hold. Now the, the usual, the alternative, the, the most common alternative is what's called bridge debt. And with bridge debt, you usually don't lock in those lower rates and they can be called upon. And those, that bridge debt usually is exactly what it's, it, the name says. It's a bridge. It's a loan that's supposed to reposition the product. So you could then go on and get a, a, a long-term mortgage product in its place. The problem is if something happens like an 07 to 09 happens, and you can't get that long-term debt, that's when you deal with a lot of problems. Mm. So that white paper that I read was that 
under 1% for agency debt during that time period, but non-agency debt, and this is even like private banks, stuff. a lot of them recall the loans, which a lot of people don't understand. There is a recall provision. Even if they're still making their payments, they could just call in the, the loan at that point. Mm-hmm. And those are the loans. There was like an 8% default rate. So it's a staggering difference. So basically going into these next three years, if anybody has been investing in syndications, a big mistake that I'm seeing right now is that people that are going in today are making the same assumptions that people were going, making three to four years ago. And that's super dangerous because three to four years ago, it almost didn't matter what deal it was. It has it's basically exiting like I would have doubled the, the, uh, like this year or next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but next three to four years might be completely different. So even operators that you might really like that did really well three, four years ago, it doesn't mean that they're going to do really well in the next three, four years. Look at the fundamentals of the deal, you know, potentially do some underwriting skills and then really lean on your network and see, you know, what is being, what, what's out there and what's going on. And you've been in the multifamily space. You've been seeing how these things uh, have been moved and shuffled around and you see what's kind of happening current, currently. Can you talk about how multifamily has generally performed um, during the past like year up till now? Because the reason I'm asking is because a lot of our listeners – they're really wanting to know like what are the professionals seeing out there, you know, cause you're doing this day in and day out. And so being able to ask somebody like yourself, Hey, what is multifamily doing right now? It'd be a right. huge advantage to our listeners. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it was interesting during COVID um, you know, we basically expected, we didn't know what to expect, right? We expected that, Oh my gosh, you know, like, is everybody going to stop paying rent or uh, what's going to happen with these properties? So we withheld some, just kind of made our cash reserves a little bit more for each deal. Uh, for, for almost every single deal, there's one deal we had a little bit of COVID issues when it came to just a few tenants not paying, but it was less than 3% of the tenant base or less than 5%. It was very low. We did have some kind of non-payment of tenants, but for the most part, it's really been pretty smooth. And then since like the last year, things have just gotten crazy where it's, it's, hard to find deals. You know, it's, if you find something off market, it's awesome because if you're just finding an on-market deal, there can be 25, 30 offers at the table. And that's not the place you necessarily want to be when you're making, you want to, you want to make, you want to be the only one making offer, not one of 30. And so um, it's an interesting market right now. I think, uh, I think beyond that, and I know we're going to probably talk about this a little bit, but I think multifamily is the absolute best place to park cash right now because um, you have a cash flowing asset that has an inflation hedge built into it. You've got some tax benefits that you can basically defer or basically you can write off taxes to where you don't pay taxes or you defer them until the property sold. And potentially you could actually defer even further if you get into another property. But uh, anyway, so there's some real advantages there. But what's happening right now in monetary policy, Danny, is just that they're printing so much money. I mean, 40% of all the currency that's ever been printed was printed in the last 18 months. So just a staggering number of new currency. So if you're in something like multifamily, rents typically rise with inflation. Uh, There are areas that we buy in, such as Atlanta. We've got a couple of properties in Atlanta. And Atlanta's growing. They're expecting the next nine years for the population to grow 30 to 40% from where it is right now. So I think it depends what area you're in. You know, we don't buy in San Francisco or New York or some of these big markets, but if you're buying where the population growth is, the job growth, uh, a lot of these things are happening during COVID, retirees, all these reasons. It's just the idea of the rising tide kind of raises all ships. And we're seeing that if we're buying and we buy a lot of these Southern states as well. So I think, you know, multifamily is, is a solid investment that if somebody's never invested in it before, it's not like 
everybody has to go and buy their own apartment building. It's that we buy these 100 to 300 unit apartment buildings. We basically pack it, you know, put investors together at, you know, 50,000, 100,000, whatever we put them together, we raise $5 million, we buy this thing where the goal is to about double the money in five to seven years. Some do phenomenally better than that. Some don't do as well as that. But in general, those that's kind of the, some of the stuff we're going for right now. But I, I just really think for anybody that does not know about multifamily investing, it is the single best investment that you can get into right now. Absolutely. And, you know, I completely agree with everything you just said. And I think you made some great points. And I do want to hit on a few of those. But one question before we get into that is, you know, so a lot, a lot of things during COVID was people talking about, hey, we're moving to the suburbs or, you know, we're getting out of the urban areas and stuff like that. Is that kind of since, since then, obviously, we're not in the height of COVID anymore, but, uh, you know, kind of moved on. Are you guys focusing more on kind of like these um, major MSAs or maybe some more of the secondary tertiary markets as we go forward, say, for the next year or whatever? Yeah, so we, you know, honestly, I love areas like Jacksonville, Florida, where you have about a million and a half in population. It's not a primary market. It's a pretty solid secondary market, but it's, um, I mean, people would say that's kind of, you know, borderline secondary, but it's it's affordable to live. You can move there and still buy a really nice house for $300,000. So you get all these retirees moving here because of the weather, because of, you know, retirement. If they live in New York or Chicago, they don't want to do those winters anymore. They can move down. And then for every retiree that moves to an area like this, you have, you know, let's say three or four people that have to move to support them, right? Because you've got retail, you've got people cleaning the house, you've got car services, you've got all kinds of, you know, medical, all kinds of different people that have to go support older people in these kind of areas. So, so I think, um, you know, in general, I, I think that really big markets such as the Dallas, uh, Orlando, Miami, uh, these markets are pretty tough to really uh, do a lot in as a smaller investor. And the reason why is because the groups that buy in those areas are typically REITs. So if you have too much money, meaning you have a billion dollars to invest, and there are groups that have billions of dollars, you can't go into Jacksonville because it's too small. It's just too small of a market. But for you know, for people that are size, we're buying you know properties of you know ten to thirty million or ten to forty-five million. Uh, it's perfect because we can go into these areas. We can buy Atlanta's another market like I mentioned. We like we like um, you know we've got some stuff in Huntsville, Alabama. We've got some some different markets we really like because they're big enough, but they're not too big. Because once you get too big, then it's all institutional money, and then I just see there's some risk there that you're you're just competing with such big players. And you don't really get that that growth upside versus when Jacksonville is at one and a half million. It's a great cash flow market. It will continue to appreciate because the population is growing so much. We're finding rents rising in Jacksonville almost 11% year over year, which is crazy. I mean, that's just crazy growth because you know you have so many people coming in and you can't build them fast enough. And so what that does is the stuff that we're buying that's 10, 20, 30, 40 years old. Uh, you know, it, it puts pressure on, on on just the rents going up and the value of all of those going up. Yeah, you make some great points there. And I love to hear that. And thank you. Thank you very much for explaining that kind of what your point of view is on that and what that looks like. Because, you know, as real estate investors, we got to follow the demographics, right? And it seems like that's kind of what you're doing, right? You're kind of just following the the trends that's going on there. So, you know, earlier you mentioned the, you know, um, multifamily being a very attractive asset class. And, you know, there are a number of advantages to investing in multifamily. You hit on a few of them, uh, one of them being inflation. So I do want to talk about that a little bit uh, before we jump into maybe some of the other advantages as well. But, uh, you know, obviously inflation is a hot topic, right? Excuse me, hot topic right now. Uh, You know, we're talking about all the money printing and kind of what's going on. And so if you can, uh, can we take it just a few minutes? And obviously it's a hot topic, but why should everybody be paying attention to inflation and what it's doing or not doing? Yeah. So for most people that, um, you know, I was born 
1980. So I'm 41. I, you look like you're younger than I am. <laughs> and, you know, for, but basically in 1980, inflation got to almost 20% in one year. So there was a period between the late 70s and early 80s where inflation was just out of control. And, you know, we just, it's not in our recent memory. It's been a long time since this has happened. So everybody kind of thinks, oh, things are just going to kind of get back to normal. But the problem is there's not a lot of fiscal restraint. So, uh, you know, there's this idea, the more money that you print, it's just, there's this, there's more money chasing the same amount of goods. I would even say right now, because of COVID, uh, they've basically given a lot of benefits for folks to, you know, stay at home, a lot of stimmy checks and other things to say, you know, so we're actually, as a country, we're producing less stuff. There's actually less stuff out there and there's more money now that's actually chasing less goods. So this kind of leads to really stag the stagflationary environment, right? You have, you know, unemployment could be higher and it's not just because people are unemployed, it's because people have stopped working and people are okay staying at home without, I mean, just being able to get those checks. But, you know, you cannot print your way to prosperity. So part of the reason of multifamily being a really good hedge against that is that, um, you know, things that are physical, things that are real, whether it's precious metals, which is a whole conversation around that, uh, housing, I would say single family housing, but single family housing has a lot of volatility. You'll see crashes. You see at the worst point in the Great Recession, single family nationally in the U.S., it was about a 4% default or delinquency rate. So, you know, one in 25 were, in, you know, behind on their payments or in, in foreclosure. And, you know, with large multifamily, meaning 60 units or more, it was one out of every 200 50. So it was 10 times less. So again, people lose their homes. You have basically a recession resistant asset class. I wouldn't say recession proof, but it's recession resistant. And particularly when you're buying uh, really those workforce type of housing, right? When you buy workforce housing versus class A apartments are brand new and they're getting premium rents that will not always exist, but people are always going to need a place to live, particularly when, you know, things, if, if whether things are good or bad, they're always going to need a place to live. So when you have uh, a, you know, uh, a place where people are just getting checks, there's more money going out, it's going to put pressure on rents and the value of multifamily or most real estate that's commercial real estate is all based on how much income is coming in. So it lags a little bit. It's not a one for one that all of a sudden there's this inflation, all of a sudden rents are here, but over time rents generally rise with inflation. And when that happens, what's going to happen is the value of these properties is going to continue to rise. And I think it's people that, uh, this just happened to us. We actually had to have a deal, our first deal in Jacksonville, we closed in June and I've, I've never... I mean, we, we bought it so well. We bought it at 95,000 a door. It's a 288 unit. We're already getting offers for 125 to 130K a door. So wow. what that means is basically the investor equity is just a small portion of that. So we've just substantially, is that 70 or 80%, we, we've made a substantial increase on the investor equity. So now we're like, well, what do we do? Do we sell it now? Do we? And so we're thinking about exchanging it into a larger property to where we just get much higher cash flow for people. But I think this is not going to be that uncommon going forward. We're going to start to see you know, where do people put all this money that's coming out here, right? We have the STEMI checks going to people that are, are lower income and middle class. And then we've got uh, PPP and these other kind of, you know, business stimulus things where people are using those in the business. And then for any profits that are coming from the business, they're saying, where can I park those profits? Well, they're putting them into assets, right? And so multifamily is a great hedge there. So, you know, you're talking about a hedge and uh, I love that. I love that term just based on terms of, you know, what's going to happen in terms of inflation, but, you know, obviously you don't have a crystal ball. You don't know what's going to happen with inflation. I mean, there's, we can all guess, right. But so in terms of what you think is going to happen, uh, you know, investing in multifamily is a hedge. Do you think there's a nut, like what other strategies can somebody put into place 
to combat uh, inflation. And then also I do have, well, I'll change to that first and I'll ask another question. Yeah. So I think you just mentioned you were watching this video, but there's a friend of mine, George Gammon, who has a strategy called the 10-80-10 strategy, where basically you put uh, you know, 10% in physical metals, such as gold and silver, not ETFs, but actually physical metals. You can go watch that video and find out why physical metal metals are, I think, more important. I didn't really get that, but there's a monetary history of over 5,000 years in metal. So it's it's not necessarily, I wouldn't call it an investment, I'd call it insurance sure. uh, that basically holds its value. And then 80%, and then you obviously need your cash, cash position as well, but 80% of your investable funds in cash flowing assets that pay you to hold them, such as multi family, there's self-storage, there's other types of real estate type assets that pay you to hold them. There's typically some inflation hedge there as well. And then about 10% you can put into speculative things. Now, I'm not a crypto guy. My friends, some of my friends love crypto. They buy crypto. I th- it feels like the dot-com bubble to me, but you know, <laughs> if you, you don't do crypto or any listener, please do it. And don't feel bad about it because Bronson says he doesn't do it. But uh, you can also do um, gold and silver junior mining stocks. So I do some of that. Uh, other, there's other speculative things, VC kind of things you can get into too, but they're the strategies. Yeah, I appreciate you breaking that down. And absolutely, I was actually watching that video right before we jumped on here. Everybody go watch it right after this episode. Go watch it. It's a, it's a great video. There's some good stuff in there. Um, so, Bronson, so I know we talked about, we just went over inflation, and we're kind of talking about some of the reasons why multifamily is such a great asset class, why, why it has all these advantages. So uh, I think you mentioned tax benefits earlier. Uh, is there any other benefits you want to talk about uh, before we get out of here, why multifamily is so great? Yeah, so I wrote a report about this. People can find it on my website at bronsonequity.com. But it's it's basically there's five major benefits. You know, one is obviously being inflation uh, hedge. You get a lot of tax benefits with it. Uh, there's there's basically higher returns. Uh, you know, it's not uncommon for us to see. Uh, you know, typically in the 14 to 16% conservative projected returns. I'm not pitching any specific deal. I'm just saying, you know, some perform better than that, some perform worse, but we're seeing that very achievable. And if you can get 15% returns per year, your money will double, double about every five to seven years, which is huge. So it's higher returns, it's lower volatility. We talked about that versus single family. It's funny how everybody thinks single family is going to make you financially free, but it really doesn't. There's very few people that become financially free. There are people that do, but it just takes a really long time. And the, it's a long-term appreciation play versus getting into something where you actually can cash flow. So, so those are a few benefits. And then, um, yeah, I think that, like I mentioned, the inflation hedge, I think there's probably one other one I'm missing, but uh, there's a lot. So I think just being in something that's real, that um, you know somebody else pays the, the, the mortgage for you is great. And especially when it's the larger buildings, you just get much better management. You get a much more efficient asset class and uh, this is why, I mean, the, the, the highest percentage of people that are net worth over hundred million, they did a study and they found where do they put their money? The highest percentage of any portion was uh, in commercial real estate. And the reason why is because of all these reasons, you know, inflation hedge, you get great returns, you get, you know, tax benefits. It's, it, it really is an unfair asset class. I and so, you know, you've been a part of many uh, passive investments and therefore, you know, it's pretty clear that you've had uh, accumulated a ton of experience, basically finding and determining the best sponsors to invest with. Right. And, you know, as a p- passive a fellow passive investor myself, we both know that it's the most important part of making a, an investment, right. Is that sponsor. Right. So, uh, just for a little bit of time here, I'd like to hear more about your process for finding good sponsors. Are there any tips you'd give for someone who is in the process of maybe finding a sponsor on like basically how and where to find them? Yeah, ab- absolutely. That, that was the, um, when I first started passive investing, I went to a, a real estate guy syndication seminar because I thought I wanted to be a syndicator. And there I learned that I wanted to 
invest with other syndicators. I didn't want to be a syndicator, but I met a bunch of syndicators. And my initial uh, strategy for picking a sponsor was, hello, what's your name? You're a syndicator. Here's some cash, right? Because I had a, <laughs> I had an old 401k and I was just handing it out like, Let, let's go because I just wanted to, to do something. Um, that's, that's not the right way to go. And since then, I have learned that the sponsor is the most important and I choose very carefully. And I think the biggest lesson I've learned is to use a community, use your network. So right now, I, at first, I, after that syndication seminar, I was listening to podcasts, you know, looking it up online, just trying to find different syndicators. And I'd call them and talk to them and, and decide if I wanted to invest. But I found a better way is to use my community, right? Now, I almost will only invest with a new sponsor if they come to me recommended by someone that I know, like, and trust that has already invested with them. And there are exceptions because there's a, one of my favorite syndicators I, I met, he cold, cold called me through bigger pockets or something like that. And I looked at it for five days. I'm like, I'm not answering this guy. It's got to be a scam. And then I'm like, hey, this is what I'm doing full time. I, I have to respond. So I did. And now he's one of my favorite guys. So I don't want to lose the ability to find someone that way because that sponsor is a really good sponsor in my network. But going forward, you know, 90% of the deals I do are going to be with sponsors that I already know or somebody in my network has recommended to me. And I think that's because these are such illiquid assets, right? When you're investing, you're putting 50 grand into something and you have zero control and it's going to be three, five, 10 years before you know if it was a good decision or not. So it's important to figure out the sponsor. And so another thing I do is when I screen the sponsors, I check for communication because that is the only thing, the only way you can figure out if your investment's doing well or not is communication. So we have a deal analyzer at Left Field Investors um, that kind of gives you, it's an Excel spreadsheet and, and you dump in the parameters, like 30 parameters and they, the cells turn red or green, whether it fits our parameters or not. And if it turns red, that doesn't mean don't invest. It means I ask a question. So I, when I'm looking at a multifamily deal, I, I put the information in and then um, anything red, I'll write a, an email to the sponsor and I'll try to see what the response is. So I'm looking for a couple of things. First, I expect you to respond within 24 hours or give me a reason why you didn't, right? Because I want someone who's going to communicate with me before I send a check. Because if they, don't, if they don't do it before I send the wire, they're not going to do it after. And the other thing I'm looking for is quality of responses. I don't want someone to reply, hey, go watch the webinar. I've already watched the webinar. I want to know, do you know this deal, right? And so I'm looking for quality responses. And then because I'm a little bit, I don't know, high maintenance is probably if you ask some of the sponsors, um, I start out high maintenance, then I get very low maintenance. But once they respond with those answers, I'm going to respond again with more questions. Even if I don't have any more questions, I'm going to make them up. <laughs> and the reason is I want to see, are they going to get annoyed because I'm high maintenance? And what I'm looking for is the guy who reads that second email and says, Hey, can I give you a call? I want to talk this deal through with you or someone who answers it with, you know, more answer answers my questions, right? So that's because it's such a long-term investment and it's such, so illiquid and you have no control. That's how I screen the sponsor. One is I let my community tell me who the good sponsors are. And two, I check for communication because that is the only way that I'm going to get news about these investments. There's a couple of my early investments when I was just spreading money around at that seminar, um, you know, I haven't heard from the sponsors in years and I don't know if the investment's doing good or not. And wow. I can handle if an investment doesn't go well, if you're telling me every step along the way, here's what's happening and you're willing to fix it. But even if you're, if you're going to give me great returns in five years, but you don't talk to me for the first four years, 
I want no part of that type of investment, regardless of the return. So that's kind of how I look at sponsors and how I try to evaluate them. And uh, I'm so glad you brought that up because communication is absolutely critical, right? And I think even even the same vein is understanding who you are as an investor. If no communication doesn't bother you, okay, you know that's the right. But like for you know for somebody like you, you like this communication, and if you're not getting it, it's going to be a problem, right? And so finding absolutely. out whether how that's going to happen before you even place capital is probably going to be one of the biggest things you could do in this deal. And I love to hear that. And so in terms of, I know this can probably vary, but it, do you typically like to see more detailed communications, or, or you know maybe including financials and stuff like that, or does like a general overview of the progress of the business um, model, does that suffice? Yeah, it, it, uh, it does. I, I don't need the financials. I'm not, I, there's some sponsors who send complete financials every month and that's great, but I don't look at them. That's their job. I, I trust, see, once I get to the point where I'm investing, I've already decided that I trust them, that I, that I think they're going to do a good job. So I'm not going to micromanage them and, and look at the financials and ask them, you know, what, what happened with with uh, taxes in, in March of 2021 or whatever. I'm, I'm not going to do that. But I would like to see, you know, how's how's your business plan going? So a page, a, a couple paragraphs, some, some send, you know, two paragraphs every month or every quarter. And that's fine with me. I just want to know that you're on top of it, that you're executing the business plan and that things are going well or things are not going well. I just want you to honestly communicate because that's the only link I have to that investment. And some of them, their only communication is here's your monthly distribution. Sure. And that's okay too. Each one is different. Um, and that, that's why when I'm screening these, I sometimes will ask for a sample communication that they've sent before, or, you know, I think people feel pressure, right? You call them up, you talk to a sponsor for the first time, they send out their first deal and you think, oh my gosh, I have to invest you shouldn't feel any pressure. I might go a year just watching all of their deals. And I tell them that up front. If it's somebody that isn't recommended by my network and I don't know them, but I would like to get to know them. I say, look, I'm going to look at all your deals for a year and I probably won't invest in any of them. And if they don't like that, then there's a thousand sponsors out there. I'm moving on, right? If I get answers I don't like, I'm moving on. So most of them say, yeah, I understood. I do the same thing. And if that's the case, then we just kind of get to know each other for a while because it's a lot of money you're putting in there. You should never feel pressure to invest with somebody. Sponsors understand that you need to get to know them first. And if they don't, that's not a sponsor I want to invest with. Absolutely. And that's a great point. I do have a question about communication, uh, kind of continuing this conversation. You know, we said at the beginning, you kind of front load it. You're, you're very communicative. You know, you're, you're asking all the questions. You're making sure the sponsor is right for you. And then, you know, as you after you place capital, maybe that trails off a little bit and you, and you become very passive, right? Um, in, in the past, in the deals you've done, have there been, um, have you had to communicate with, uh, you know, syndicators much during the deal? Because I think, uh, you know, I've talked to a few passive investors about this and some of them basically just, they don't ask any questions, even if they have a concern, right? They're just like, hey, this is a passive deal. I'm just going to lay back low and see if it works out, right? Something like that. Do you find yourself communicating with syndicators? Maybe you see something that's maybe out of the normal to you or just you know, like during the deal? Yeah, absolutely. If I see something that that isn't what it was supposed to be, I'll ask whether it's on the upside or the downside. Um, I, I don't communicate if things are going well and I'm getting regular communications and and everything's looking good. I, I don't. But if things aren't going well, I absolutely ask questions. Or if things are going better, I might say, "Hey, good job. What, what's what's happening here? Why why is my distribution so high?" Um, just because I want to know. But that, that's another thing. It, it it is supposed to be passive after you send that wire, but don't feel like you can't ask questions. You should. You're you're an owner of that investment, right? You own part of that LLC. You own part of that apartment or that self-storage unit. 
Um, so yeah, absolutely. You should ask questions if you have them. And most sponsors that I deal with, they, they're happy to respond. And the few that aren't, I'm done. You know, this is my last investment with you. It's just, there's so many people out there doing this that you don't have to uh, stay in a relationship with someone that's treating you poorly. Sure. Sure. That's a great point. And I appreciate you sharing that. I know a lot of our listeners will take away that uh, pretty well. That's uh, that's good stuff. So, you know, with all the investments you've been in and, you know, not necessarily, this is not in regards to just communication, but just the investments in general, but are there any stories you can share about past investments that maybe didn't go as planned? And if so, can you tell us about those and what you learned from those experiences? Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a couple. Um, the one that we've kind of been talking about it was, you know, one of the first investments I did I haven't heard from them. I call them, I text them, I email them. And every six months they'll respond and say, oh, hey, yeah, we're going to start communicating and you're, you're going to love our communications. And, and they just don't. And they haven't been paying distributions like they said. And it's just been a disaster. And so finally they had a, they put a new guy in charge and he called me up and said, oh, we're going to start communicating. And I'm like, I just don't believe you. And we, we had a conversation. I said, you're going to have to show me. And so far, you know, it's been, I was in November, so they've sent a December report and, uh, and, and they've done something at least, but I'll never invest with them again, regardless of how they turn it around, because it's been years where they haven't done anything. So that was one. The other one um, was where someone was a, uh, what was he, a, turn, a turnkey operator in Texas, and they did a great job, and, but the Texas market, Dallas, wasn't, uh, wasn't working for turnkeys anymore because prices had gone up, and so they decided to switch to office, uh, commercial office space and CBD equipment, because it was back when the CBD was just going to be the ne- big next thing. And I was like, oh, they, they did turnkey. Great. So of course, they're going to do everything else well. And it was a disaster, lost money, got some of the money back. Some of it I didn't. And what I learned there was, I'm not investing with anybody who's trying something new. I'm not going to be your guinea pig. You do a couple of deals, maybe I'll come back to it. And so that, that's one of my things is if you're switching asset classes, I'm out. Um, unless like one syndicator, they were a multifamily syndicator. They decided to get into self-storage. And I said, I'm not investing in self-storage with you. And then they said, well, we hired someone new who has 20 years of self-storage experience. And then I said, okay, I'll watch your first couple deals and I might get in it after that. But for, to me, I want to make sure that I'm investing with someone who's an expert in whatever asset class they're doing. And if they switch to something else, they either have to hire the ex- expertise or I'm just going to sit and watch them for a long time before I get comfortable with it because that's, that's where I got burned before. Hey, thanks for listening to today's episode. Head over to iTunes to subscribe to the show. And while you're there, we really appreciate you leaving a rating and written review. If you have any questions or topics you'd like to hear on the show, connect with us on social media or through our website at twosmartassets.com. We look forward to speaking to each and every one of you. Talk to you soon.